This week's Deeper Dig is brought to you by Casella Waste Systems. Let's recycle better together. Be sure to empty and clean recyclables. When in doubt, throw it out. Americans toss far too many non-recyclable items in their recycling bins. It adds up and hurts recycling programs. Learn what belongs in your blue bin at casella.com slash recycle better. Let's recycle better together. From BT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, nursing homes reopened their doors to visitors last November. But advocates still worry that another COVID-19 spike could once again lock family members out from seeing and caring for their relatives. What have we learned from nursing home lockdowns? And what does it mean for the future of long-term care? Our healthcare reporter, Leora Engel-Smith, went to Birchwood Terrace, a nursing home and rehab facility in Burlington, to learn more. Leora, thanks for jumping on. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your trip to Birchwood. The first thing that I saw was a lot of snow. (laughs) A lot of (laughs) snow. I saw there was like a sign thanking nurses on the road to Birchwood saying something like heroes work here or something like that. Then, you you know, you get you get to sort of the facility and there's a sign that says there are active COVID-19 cases here. And then you kind of enter and everything looks like you think it should. People are coming and going. They're wearing masks. Uh, We had to sign in and then also they sort of checked our temperatures and made sure that we were wearing the right kind of mask and stuff like that. You walked in and it was just kind of exactly what you would expect a nursing home to be, like very sunny, residents everywhere. People were having lunch. Aside from the mask and from that that sign, it felt very normal. I imagine this is a very different scene from how this looked back in early 2020. Yeah. When the coronavirus first set in. Yeah, I mean, it was such a departure. Like 2020 was such a weird animal when it comes to sort of what happened to folks there. Like everything stopped. Residents kind of stayed in their rooms a lot. You couldn't eat meals with other folks. You couldn't participate in, you know, those activities that make your life meaningful. Because, right, you could give someone COVID, you could get COVID. Nurses and and staff were all wearing masks. And so, like, suddenly there's this kind of, like, division. You know, you're not allowed to necessarily touch a resident anymore because what if you give them COVID? You know, there was this kind of atmosphere, I think, of fear of like what's happening, what's going to happen to us. And family members were kind of on the outside of that. So are you, are you comfortable, Dad? Do you want to sit down in your chair or do you want to sit there? Oh, I was going to sit down, but I... I'm, we can do that. You want me to take I'll that out of the put, corner? I'll have to put this out. Oh, yeah, yeah, it seems like it's in the way, right? Tell me about this family that you met with and what they told you about how that affected them. I initially spoke on the phone with Andrea Thorpe. She's an only child. And she has the power of attorney for her parents. Her parents are David and Joyce Rines. They both live in Birchwood. And when the pandemic happened in 2020, Birchwood was hit really, really hard at first. It had like, I believe, one of the biggest outbreaks of COVID-19 in the state. They, of course, went ahead and tested people. And it turned out that David had asymptomatic COVID. And so he immediately sort of landed. This is like in the first weeks of 2020, uh, first weeks of March 2020, where things were really kind of fresh. 
he kind of landed in isolation. And so what was it like? What was, what sort of like, if you were to describe to me what your days were like when you were all alone, what was it like? Well, I tried to keep my mind centered there like, like the Apostle Paul did in the New Testament. He, he centered his mind on one thing there, and, and that's the cross and what Jesus went through. He talks about it in sort of one of two ways. Either he sort of alludes to the, these epic battles in the Bible, or he sort of talks about it in this sense of like, now I understand what jail feels like. Uh, and I can only imagine what, what uh, jail time people go through to, to offset the booze or whatever you, you want to call them. I, I don't like to use the word depression. Depression to me is not hope. And, and hope is, uh, the Bible teaches hope. And it really struck me because I did not expect that. He's a very sweet person, very kind of good-natured. But you kind of could see that as soon as he started talking about this, you could kind of almost see like the shadow kind of on his face, that he was sort of remembering something that was incredibly unpleasant. Like what was a day like for you? What did it feel like to be there? Well, it's a, lon- it's a loneliness thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that you're gonna, you're not gonna be joyous about it anyway. No matter what what you go through, but but being being fed and everything, you, you still you still maintain your daily routine. So were you just sort of sitting in the room all day? Like, did you go anywhere? That's about all you could do. You got a you got a window half the size of this. Uh huh. It's over in the back, and. Do uh, you have any books to read or anything oh, like that? I, I had some, I had some books. I didn't do I didn't do too much so. Uh huh. Did the nurses come and visit you at all, or were you just? Oh well, yeah, you, you'd see you'd see them and the, and when they feed you and everything. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't in a in a state of mind to blame anybody. I I I figured I I had to do it and, and at the time and and that was it. He stayed in a room with somebody that he, I don't know that he ever knew the name of the person, and if he did, he forgot. But what he didn't forget is that, you know, they're both in isolation, and this person was screaming and screaming and screaming, and the person didn't stop screaming until they died. Wow. You know, he literally witnessed this person passing, and it was so difficult for him. He sort of said that he... He has a hobby where he likes to collect a bunch of like just random phrases, random thoughts that he has. He puts them on these index cards and he puts them in boxes and he has boxes and boxes of these. And I mean like thousands and thousands of cards. And he couldn't do it when he was in isolation. He said he was not in like the, he was not in the right frame of mind, but he was sort of talking to himself and praying and it was him in his head. David, would you mind if I um, open one of those boxes? I wanted to oh, see. Oh, I'll open them all for you. <laughs> I want to see. Which one? What's the significance of these cards? What, what kind of purpose do you think those serve for him? It's almost like a memory download. You know, it's somewhere between like a rough draft for like a memoir and like a memory download and a way for him to sort of pass it on to his children and grandchildren, well, to his daughter. How do you choose what to put in here? Like what? Whatever happens on that day, it's like a diary. Uh-huh. So what was that? What does this day mean? What did this? It's kind of interesting because they're really cryptic when you look at them. 
The greatest battles in life are those battles that are fought within yourself. Yeah. Hmm. They're just like phrases and it's like he knows what those phrases mean and why he wrote them down. And you're there to try to kind of unlock that. Like we were playing a game, you know, of trying to understand why did you put this phrase right here? What did it mean for you? I found it like a very sort of fascinating insight into sort of his, how his head works. What's David's background? What did he do before he ended up in Birchwood? He was a carpenter. <laughs> that came up a lot in his metaphors. Oh, it's, it's what, you, what you have to go through in life. Uh, life is a series of, of uh, hills and slopes. It isn't all level. The only level I ever had was in the carpentry trade. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was uh, very happy that I knew something about carpentry to be able to sort of be there with him. So when you talk about there being sort of a lingering long-term impact, even for him of just having been in isolation for a week, how did they characterize that? What do you think that long-term impact is for this family? So I would put it in sort of almost like two buckets. Like the first bucket would be the emotional side of it. Like Andrea was saying how suddenly she couldn't visit her family, her, her mom and dad. She's an only child. She's the power of attorney. She couldn't see them physically. And the kind of anxiety of like not being able to sort of see what's happening to them. Are they okay? Andrea's mom has pretty advanced dementia. She didn't really sort of understand what was happening. You know, you couldn't, it's not meaningful to sort of interact with her over the phone exactly because, right, it's more complicated than just being there in person and touching her and saying, hey, mom, I'm right here for you. Andrea's dad, David, for him, it felt like like he was abandoned. It's just something that she couldn't come to visit there. She, that's the hardest thing, mm-hmm. being shut, shut out there. And then, and then when you walk in the front door there, they they look at you like you got you got the plague or something. And you, that's that's not a good feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't generate good feelings either. Right. Not right. That, All that sort of added up to sort of this depression that he developed. And he continues to sort of struggle with these feelings. He still talks to a social worker and you can sort of tell that he's very impacted by it. And then the other sort of side of it, the other bucket was that Andrea and a lot of caregivers sort of view themselves as the eyes and ears of people who are in nursing homes. They are there to sort of see, oh, you know, mommy's acting a little weird today. Maybe she has a UTI or, you know, let's let's talk about it. Let's try to dig in. Andrea essentially couldn't do it. And so when she eventually was able to sort of come and see her parents in person, she's noticed all these sort of small signs that some of the care that they needed to get was not given to them. For example, Andrea's mom, the top of her teeth were kind of rotten. It's hard to sort of say what happened exactly, but... You know, it's possible that she didn't get her teeth brushed quite as often as he should have. Andrea's dad had a fungus under his watch wrist, and it was hard to sort of say what happened there too, but Andrea thought maybe somebody forgot to take his watch off, or maybe he just didn't get 
as many showers or baths as he needed to. Just kind of like not being there and coming back and, and feeling like, you know, you were not there to sort of be your parents' advocates really sort of affected how Andrea views her role and views sort of like what should and shouldn't happen to protect folks who are in this situation. You reported a couple of weeks ago on this new report by Vermont's long-term care ombudsman. What did that tell us? What's our understanding of what took place over the first two years of the pandemic? How widespread was this problem and how many people found themselves in situations like David Ryan's mm -hmm. and his family? So the long-term care ombudsman, that office releases a yearly report of all the complaints, just sort of a tally of what they saw in long-term care facilities and what are some things that they did in order to help residents. But one of the things that they pointed out in the report that came out last month, it's covering sort of the last part of isolation, sort of the year that ended, the fiscal year that ended September 30th, 2021. They noted that they couldn't be there quite as much as they wanted to because, right, lockdown prevented them from going in and doing surprise visits or just chatting with a resident and, you know, making sure that people know that they're there. And so what that meant is that fewer people knew about them. So there were fewer complaints. At least that's what they think. It's not because there were fewer violations. It's just because people didn't know to report, you know, whatever was happening to them. And also maybe they didn't even recognize that it was a violation. And so the two sort of big things that came out of that report is that all long-term care facilities are incredibly understaffed, and that is affecting everything in those nursing homes. Uh, it's affecting the type of care that people have, ability to sort of like see warning signs of, of decline early, and just sort of like the quality of life there. And then the other sort of big part was the ombudsman's office was very concerned about loneliness and about some of these things that we talked about that, you know, folks were incredibly sort of isolated from their families. And the report sort of called on stakeholders to listen to the folks who endured this isolation and figure out how can we sort of protect them, you know, without sort of forgetting about their other needs. When did things start to loosen up for people who live in nursing homes and their families who are trying to get in there and be advocates for their loved ones? I spoke to Laura Pelosi. She's a lobbyist for an organization that basically kind of advocates for long-term care facilities in Vermont. And she spoke a lot about how nursing home staff and, and long-term care facility staff really tried to do as much as they could while sort of protecting people. And so, you know, they would uh, bring people to windows in order to sort of see their loved ones from a window. They would arrange for Zoom calls with loved ones, even though that didn't work very well for folks that had dementia because it's just too complicated for them. This kind of like looking at a screen and trying to understand that your daughter or your son is looking at you, it's just too complicated. And then when the weather got better, they had outdoor visitations. And so you could sort of hang out with your family members outdoors when the weather was nice, right? And then around November of 2021, things reopened and you were sort of allowed to come back with restrictions to see your parents. Like maybe you would have to call ahead and say, I'm planning on coming in today. Or maybe you would 
you know, have to sign in or get temperature checks like we did. And, you know, things were looking really great for a bit because we did not have Omicron and nursing homes, you know, had very few cases, if any, of COVID. And there was such a, you know, high vaccination rate among residents. And it really felt like we were maybe getting past this. And then, of course, Omicron happened and nursing homes have cases, but it seems for the time being that federal and state officials are sort of leaning towards keeping nursing homes open, sort of looking at what happened during isolation and and understanding that locking people up for extended periods of time is not very conducive to their good health. That makes sense. Although it's also kind of counterintuitive since, like you said, there have been times when transmission is really high in long-term care facilities. And we know that older people are at the highest risk of dying from COVID. So what is the case for just allowing visitors to walk right in? The biggest sort of thing was that a lot of nursing home residents were vaccinated, very, very highly vaccinated. And in the beginning, it seemed as though the vaccination alone would sort of protect folks from serious illness and things would be okay. Delta kind of changed that a little bit. But, you know, with the booster, folks have been able to remain reasonably protected. But then on the other side of this, if you are isolated and you don't see your family members, you're likely to get depressed. Maybe your your high blood pressure, your diabetes gets worse. Maybe you stop eating. Your quality of life declines. And there's quite a bit of research that shows that social isolation is one of those sort of paths to death for seniors because we are social animals, because we need our loved ones. We need to feel meaning. We need to feel connection. And if we don't feel that, our connection to this life can erode a little bit. Do we have a sense of how widespread the impact of lockdowns on seniors has been over the course of these past almost two years now? So I have asked that, and it seems that it's very hard to kind of parse out the impact of isolation and loneliness from other things. You know, we know that older people die, right? And so it's very hard to kind of say, you know, this is how many people we lost because, you know, they were isolated. It's sort of very, very complicated. But what we do know is that there's been a lot of stories everywhere, you know, across the United States of family members sort of saying that their loved ones have been either neglected or didn't get the care that they needed and sort of drawing anecdotally sort of that connection from, you know, my mom or dad were not sort of cared for, you know, in the best way. And then they died. And so I think we're never going to know exactly how many people sort of lost their lives to it. It's not the same as like if you, you know, if you had COVID and you died of COVID, right? That's very, very specific. But I think if we go and ask people who lived through it, you know, I'm sure that they will sort of talk about, just like David talked about, sort of this sense of abandonment and sense of just being separated from the world, which is, you know, never good. You said that some of these concerns over how previous spells of isolation have impacted this population seem to have already informed the approach during Omicron, that policymakers were really reluctant to put new restrictions on nursing homes. I wonder, what do we know going forward? You know, it seems like we're we're already on the, the downward curve of the Omicron wave. We're already past infection being at pre-Omicron levels. But health experts say there could be other variants down the line. 
do we have a sense of how this understanding that we've arrived at now might impact future policy changes or future response to future threats? Well, I mean, if there's one thing we can tell about COVID is that we don't know anything. We know just enough and then we think we know and then COVID comes and shuffles everything, then we're back at square one. And so, right, like you were saying, there may be other variants and there may be other sort of threats. And so in that case, like thinking about this right now and sort of while we're maybe on the downward slope is perhaps good because maybe we'll be ready for sort of whatever the next thing is. There's a reluctance to lock nursing homes again. There's a reluctance to lock these congregate living facilities again for the reasons that we mentioned. But families are like kind of on their toes Andrea Thorpe was mentioning how she always thinks in the back of her mind, like, is it going to happen again? Like, am I going to not be able to see my family again? And they're looking for assurance that they don't have right now. And so there is this movement to to amend the rules for who is allowed inside a nursing home or a long-term care facility while there's a public health emergency. And it's a federal bill that got introduced last summer, and it's called the Essential Caregivers Act of 2021. It designates one or two people who are caregivers, essential caregivers. And if this bill passes, it would mean that those people would always be able to come into a nursing home, maybe wearing PPE or maybe like having to get like additional training in order to sort of be safe and keep their family members who are in nursing homes safe, but that, you know, they would never be excluded from coming into a facility where their loved ones are in again. There's a similar sort of effort to that effect in Vermont. It's a bill that got introduced in January and it's uh, called H-595. It's sort of working its way. I mean, I think it's going to take a while. I think both of those things are going to take a while because policy never moves as fast as we want it to. But maybe that means that family members would have the assurance that they need before the next wave. Got it. Thanks, Leora. Thank you very much for having me. You can read more from Leora Engel-Smith at vtdigger.org and find all of our COVID coverage in one place at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.